Create Out Loud is brought to you by Anchor.fm. And if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast so you can, yes, create out loud. It's free. They give you tools so you can record easily on your phone or your computer. They'll distribute the podcast for you. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started. Because yeah, I want you to create out loud. Hey, welcome back to Create Out Loud. I'm Jen Loudon, and on this show, we invite the world's most interesting, dynamic, and groundbreaking creatives to get vulnerable about their creative journey and share the lessons they learned along the way so that you too can have a deep and fulfilling creative life. This week, my guest is the amazing Celeste Headley. She is an incredible keynote speaker, an award-winning longtime journalist, the author of three books, including her newest, Speaking of Race, and her best-selling, Do Nothing. And she's really an expert in conversation. And her TEDx talk about 10 ways to have a conversation has over 25 million views. I wanted to talk to Celeste because Do Nothing has meant so much to me. But Speaking of Race is going to become one of those books too. And you know what? I recorded no asides for this conversation. I honestly felt there was nothing I needed to or could add. And finally, we have a YouTube channel. We put up the video of these interviews. And sometimes they're not that interesting to watch, like the video and the audio is so in sync, but this week I would go check it out. The look on my face alone when she delivers so many incredible insights that go straight to my heart, but also watching Celeste. She is so full of life and really I completely fell in love with this woman. So without further ado, here we go. So Celeste, to quote you, paraphrasing Shakespeare, some are born to converse, some achieve good conversation through effort, and some have conversations thrust upon them. Which one are you? Definitely three. I've had these conversations <laughs> thrust upon me my whole life. So it was either sink or swim. And when you say those conversations, are you thinking specifically about racial conversations or all the conversations of your vast career? I come from, in many ways, a connect, kind of an anachronistic family. And many of the, the easy answers that make up small talk for other people are not yeah. particularly easy for me. So largely race, because I'm, I'm racially nondescript in some people's view. But lots of conversations are, are more difficult for me than they perhaps they are for others. One one of the things I'm obsessed with in life is, is how we have these signature themes that occur in our work, in our lives, but particularly for creative people. And at first, when I was getting to know your work over the last years, I thought, oh my God, there well, she's everywhere. She does everything. She started as a musician. She became this incredible journalist. Now she's this amazing speaker. Now she's an author of, at first I thought three very different books. I've since revised that thought. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what do you see the signature theme of your work being? Interestingly enough, the very first TEDx talk I ever gave was finding a mission rather than looking for a job description. And one of the things I said in there was that, you know, it may seem odd that I was, you know, I'm a professional musician and then I'm a reporter. Mm -hmm. The fact is I'm a broadcast reporter, which means essentially both of them are the same thing. They're both trying to reach people using the power of my voice. And that's still kind of my same job. It's always been a theme of my life that A, I tend to be effective at communicating to people. And I have found, especially through reporting, that I'm quite good at distilling, and, and you know, something about this, distilling very complicated scientific and research information down 
down into a format that people can find understandable and relevant. So through pretty much all of my work, it's about communicating information in a way that is both emotionally and cognitively interesting and helpful. I see that, you know, as, as you study somebody's work, you see your idea of what their theme is. And I thought, yeah, it has something to do with it, voice and distillation. And that comes out so clearly in all of your books. I mean, speaking of race, I've been reading this past weekend and then I'd finished Do Nothing, read it a second time. And there's so much that's complicated that you make so clear. And I appreciated that over and over again, because I know how hard it is. And I think also another thing that has emerged for me, and actually this is quite tied to music for me anyway, is trying to get people back in touch with their basic humanity and think, you know what, I'm enough. Like I'm a human being in all the flaws and mess that that mate that is, and that's okay. Like I can accept who I am. I can accept this, all of this and work with that. Like figuring out what is our base humanity at its best and its worst and accepting it is another, has become another theme. That's true in Do Nothing and in Speaking of Race. You know, Do Nothing, it was odd that one of the classifications of it was as a, as a self-help book because it's kind of an anti-self-help book. <laughs> You're okay, book. <laughs> I felt so busted reading it, though. I have to, I have to confess. So at the beginning, wait, now listen. I love when people say that. Okay, yeah, yeah. Go. I'm sure you've heard this a lot, but this one will really make you squirm. So at the beginning of this year, my husband has a regular job and he has health insurance benefits. I've been self-employed almost my whole life. Very few times in my life have I had that kind of health coverage. The insurance company gave us Fitbits. And if we do a certain things, we get money into our HSA. And for months, I would do exactly what the woman you described in the book does. I would shake my hand. (laughs) And then finally, a friend of ours said, you know, you're doing that to earn a dollar. So he busted me first, but you busted me second. So I stopped doing it. I want to promise. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad. You know, it's not just you. I mean, we all do that stuff. You know, it's funny because I tell people all the time, the reason I know so much about the stuff that I write about is because I do all of it, right? Like I bust myself all the time. And you do that beautifully and do nothing. It really helped me to take in the message because I didn't feel preached to. Oh, I'm so glad. That's what I'm aiming for. I don't want people to feel like I'm coming down from the, as the guru from the mountain saying, look at my life and emulate. No, I'm like, (laughs) we're in this together and it's tough. Uh, When you look at these different things that you do, the reporting to singing, to writing books, to speaking, to now being kind of a wellness advocate or anti-self-help person or whatever we want to call it. Is there anything in the creative process of doing all of that that has, does it feel, does it all feel the same to you? Does it have a similarity or does it feel really different when you go into reporting mode versus singing? Yeah. I mean, singing is, it's, it's joyful work in a way that reporting isn't necessarily joyful. Mm -hmm. It's still work, but you know, I don't have to worry when I'm doing music about accuracy, (laughs) right? (laughs) I don't have to worry that I'm going on the record. I can mm-hmm. just literally let my mm-hmm. all my training and all my practice, the, the point of all that practice and discipline is so that when you finally get to the point of singing, 
you can forget it all. Mm. But in journalism, the training of all that practice and discipline is so that when you're in the moment doing the interview, it'll all come to you and be right there. Like, so it's an almost an opposite discipline. One, you're disciplining and practicing so you can forget. One, you're doing it so you can remember. Just in terms of release, it's much more cathartic for me, the music itself, than the journalism. But I take the same pleasure in both of them. I don't have any ego about my music. In order to make a living, the journalism side has taken over. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. The world is not losing some fantastic artist by not, you know, having CDs of money on the shelf. But I still take great joy in it. What about when you're speaking? Do you lose yourself when you're speaking? Or is it that same sort of awareness of, I want to make this point? No, when I'm speaking, that is much more like perform musical performance. That's an interesting point that you make and interesting that you picked up on that because when I am actually speaking, it is much closer to what I feel mm -hmm. when I'm performing an aria. I get very caught up in the message and I know it so well that I can forget all of the mm -hmm. research and stuff and mm -hmm. I can just be talking directly to people. And it's one of the things that has made virtual speeches so difficult for me mm -hmm. because I ride the, the reactions mm -hmm. of my audience like a, an emotional wave. You know, I can tell when I say something and people are like skeptical so that I need to go, okay, I can tell that you're skeptical. Let me, <laughs> you know, let me clarify that. And so that has made it difficult. But yeah, you are correct. The, the public speaking, I think one of the reasons I'm so good at that is because I have all that training as a performer. You're very present. I noticed that in the TED Talk. I will confess that most TED Talks, I don't get past the first three to four minutes. Yeah. I've watched, I don't know if I've watched any other TED Talk all the way through besides yours. Wow, that's quite a compliment. And I was completely wrapped. You're very confident and present. Do you think that's come from a combination of factors, including musical training and being in conversation with thousands of people as a broadcast journalist? Of the only musical training I've had is as a classical artist. Mm -hmm. I was in classical theater before I was in classical music, ironically enough. And you lit, the music is so hard. Mm -hmm. You cannot think about what you just did or what's coming. You can only think about the moment that you're in. If you have a high C coming, you can't be sitting there thinking about that high C, not only because thinking about that high C changes the embouchure of your, changes the position of your mouth. So I have to be thinking of that note because me thinking of that note also puts it in the right position in my face and in my lips. Training to be a, an opera musician is really a training in mindfulness and presence to be right there in that moment on that note and on that vowel. Because remember also in singing opera, so much of it is about the vowel that you're singing. It, that changes the way your mouth is, it changes your resonances, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, when I'm speaking, I am telling that thing at that mm. moment, whatever that is, I'm trying to convey, you know, I keep notes, notes with me at all times. Cause I don't, I forget which order my slides are in. I don't remember at all because I need to be in that particular moment. I'm not really thinking ahead. As one of the things in the TED talk to have good conversations is presence and being present. And that really made me extra aware of it when I was watching it. So this is a big question. What is a conversation? It's a really good question because most of us label too many things as conversation. <laughs> We're constantly labeling talking as conversation. Conversation is a mutual exchange of ideas. That's what it is. But if you really pick that apart, if you have come away from a conversation and you have not received an idea or information, you have not had a conversation. 
wow. I mean, my whole, I say this at least three times in an interview, my whole body just went mm, like you rang me like a bell. Right. And, and then I'm also want to blush for how many times it's been so, all about me. Yes. So if you've had a conversation on all you've done is give, that was not a mutual exchange. Wow. That was just talking. Thank you so much. I kind of tear up at that. Yeah, we tend to, you know, and this mm. is the same thing that's true in like job interviews, in every kind of discussion that we have, we focus so much on what we're going to say. And we don't think to ourselves, what do I want to hear from this person? What would I like to know from this person? You know, it's interesting because in my, the book, Speaking of Race, I thought about this a lot. Follow this thread down. It brings you into the area of rhetoric. For centuries, some of our greatest minds used to study rhetoric. Yeah. We don't think about it at all anymore. We do not think about the ethics of argument and discussion and conversation at all. But I thought about this a lot, like what are our ethical obligations during a conversation? What defines a conversation? What is our obligation to the other person? Do we need to establish consent before we get into these difficult discussions? What implies consent? All these issues that, again, people studied for centuries and we've just thrown them out the window. A lot of that has to do with social media, which is mm -hmm. so very casual that it's mm -hmm. bled over into our regular mm -hmm. lives. And texting and email. Yes. Yes, and it's bled into our regular lives. But I want to recapture this idea of as conversation is sort of the basis for what human beings do better than anything else, that it's this precious resource that we're kind of mishandling and taking for granted. It's really unfortunate. It's like Whitney Houston waking up at age 20 and saying, you know what, I don't feel like singing. I'm <laughs> going to be an accountant, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just like we all have this beautiful, incredible talent that we're just like, eh. I'm not going to do that. And that's when I come back to sort of the essence of conversation. That's sort of what we're missing with all this talking, talk, 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 talk. We're missing this exchange. I did a lot of training in how to cover Native American communities when I was a journalist because I started my journalistic career in Arizona. And in a number of Native traditions, as a journalist, you cannot go onto the Navajo reservation and just knock on the door and say, oh, no, no, no. A, you don't look them in the eye, but you start by offering a gift for first. If I walk up to the door, especially of an elder, I'm going to say, hello, my name is Celeste Headley and I'm, I work at KNAU and I'm covering this story. And what led to me, the story is I had this interest in blah, 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 blah. And this is why I think this is important. I'm going to give something of myself to them before I ask them, give something in return. It's this exchange, but I have to, in good faith, offer the trade first. It's, for me, this is a beautiful way to realize that this exchange, this exchange we have during conversations is precious. It is a gift that people give you when they give you their story. And it's one that we just don't value as much as I think we should. We're afraid of it. Yes, it us, makes us obligated. Honestly, I think for me, you know, you wrote about this so well in Do Nothing and everybody, you just have to read all the books and see the TED Talk because we're covering it all. But in Do Nothing, you talked about how we have to hear each other's voices. Yeah. We're not getting this through text and email. And yet I find myself wanting to hide behind text and email. And some of it is the productivity conversation that I need to maximize every moment of my time, which you really blew apart for me, like just another layer of it. 
I uh, had such a better weekend after rereading Do Nothing, I got to tell you. I'm like, I'm oh, just going to sit so here happy. and draw and I'm going to sit here and like, it's not because I have to become good at this. I'm never going to be good at this. I don't care. I like it. You made me realize how important it is to force myself to pick up the phone and have these conversations. Why are we afraid of it? That is a question that scientists have been trying to answer for quite some time now, because I mean, you've read the books, conversation, unless it's competitive or hostile, they're good for us. They're so mm -hmm. good for us. And they feel good. Yeah. And they, <laughs> and we feel better after we have them, you know, they do all these tests in which they tell people, okay, we're going to force you to interact with someone and have a short conversation. Mm -hmm. And everybody predicts I'm going to hate this. And then at the end of the study, everyone's like, actually, I really enjoyed that. You know, it was interesting. Jillian Sandstrom, who's the, she's the scientist that I spent time with observing her experiment in the UK. And she actually did a similar experiment with, with some docents at a museum because the museum was trying to encourage the docents to start up conversations with museum goers mm -hmm. because it ended up making both parties feel good. So she went through this whole thing and she's like, maybe they're just afraid. Maybe they don't know what to say. So we're going to do training to help them figure out how to do small talk and start up these conversations. Again, you had this thing where all the docents were like, I'm going to hate this. Then they went through the training. They were like, actually, that wasn't that bad. And I really enjoyed it. And then the last question on their survey was, so do you think you do more of this in the future? And they said, nope. Oh, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what to say to that. We're, we just, we make this dumb choice all the time and it's counterproductive and it's self-destructive. And it just brings me back to something Noam Chomsky said, which is that we don't know yet if humans are a viable species. <laughs> I love that quote. I had never heard that quote before. I'm like, well, clearly I do a, a lot of climate activism stuff and I'm like, clearly that's one question, but also this human question. Yeah. And I have to sometimes put it on my to-do list, Celeste. Yeah, which is okay. I even say this in the book. I'm like, if you need to schedule your social time in, then do that. We are fighting a tide. Our entire society is built around this, turning us into machines, productive machines. I even saw some interview with some woman saying, well, we should all be aiming for diversity and inclusion because it makes workers more productive. <laughs> I thought, wow. Wow. Thank, um, thanks for just making me part of the machine. <laughs> and also like, what is the point of the work? Only purpose of the work to give us what it is that we need in order to have happy, well, healthy lives. Yeah. I don't know why we keep avoiding it. I no. really, really don't know. Do you still avoid it? No, no, no. I just, am, I've become much more aware of when I'm out of that energy. You know, after I give a, an in-person keynote, and even sometimes when it's virtual, and I'm riding the plane back home, I don't want anyone looking at me or touching me <laughs> or talking to me. I've just poured out all yeah. of this social energy. And of course, after you give a speech, everyone rushes up to talk to you and yeah. you're engaged and you're answering yeah. questions and hearing their stories. I'm just very aware of my state of being at mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. And I've learned to do, you know, the body scan to check down through my body and say, how are we doing, Celeste? How are you feeling? What's our mood? What's our energy level? But I don't avoid conversations anymore. I'm like the conversation warrior. Somebody mm -hmm. called me a, an, an evangelist and I, I am that. So let's turn to the new book as much as I want to keep talking about everything. So if it's hard for us to have conversations with our friends, it's probably going to be more difficult for us to have conversations about race. Yeah. 
but it's hard for us to have those conversations about race even with our friends that's true because um, our friends say stuff that we find even minorly problematic or they make some joke where we're like eh, and we don't say anything and i'm sure that goes the other way if we're doing that about things other people say i'm sure other people are cringing about some of the things we say and they're not telling us, which means we're not learning and we're not growing and we're not getting better. I actually want us to start with our friends and our family members and the people that we care about and are closest to us. Start there. That probably feels safer than having that conversation with somebody who looks different from you. However, that's where it's all going because we're not going to solve this until we can get those conversations going. Yeah, we're avoiding conversation even when it's about like what to have for dinner so we're even <laughs> more avoiding them when it comes to race and i find that even even more so and again this is anecdotal just from workshops right. i carry out when people do have these conversations about race they are even more focused on what it is they want to say oh my god yes i didn't think about that i was raised in a racist family my dad was born in 1919 he was raised in the south but there was so much to work through i mean it'll be a lifetime's work and then you have friendships with people who haven't had to confront that stuff well i used to want to preach and yeah. it's so unproductive it's incredibly unproductive <laughs> i mean number one you may get a little you know, dopamine shot, but are you really enjoying it? You've said all no, that stuff not. before. You're not, you know, really having a great, I mean, if they're listening to you at all, it's like, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, glazed eyes right. and just a tilted head, right? So yeah, with these conversations about race, we either want to preach them as you say, or we go in there thinking about what we're going to say to prove we are not racist. Oh yeah. That was me for many years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why like the whole first section of the book is mm -hmm. focused on internal work. And it's why I started it where I did by saying, you know, take a breath, you're biased. You yeah. know, racist is not the worst thing someone can say to you because guess what? It's true. So let's get past that. <laughs> take us through some of the ways that we can, well, at least one of the ways we can do a little of that inner work because we can't overcome our unconscious bias it's always going to be operating to some degree. I mean, I know my mindfulness training helps. I think the first thing is number one, what we were just talking about, which is stop focusing so much on what it is that you want to say. Understand that you are not an expert in race. That doesn't really exist. You're always going to be a student in this area. So understand that first and focus on learning other people's stories and how they came to understand their own racial identity. The other thing is to slow down because as I point out in the book, going back to the work of Daniel Kahneman in terms of system one and system two thinking, just really quickly for those people listening, system one thinking is all those automatic thought that's happens. I think it's something like 98% of your, somewhere between 92 and 98% of your thought is unconscious, right? You, it, you don't think about what it takes to open a door. You just mm -hmm. do it. That's your really quick thinking that occurs. Sadly, we, we put things that should be in system two thinking, these slower, more contemplative, more careful thought processes into system one. So we'll see a person of a different race and we will immediately associate with them all the qualities mm -hmm. that have been fed to us by our families and our media and our books mm -hmm. and all of the other things. So we need to slow down a little bit. Don't open up and state your opinion or ask mm -hmm. questions right away. Take a breath. 
before you speak. You know, frankly, we're all too fast talking as it is. Mm -hmm. It's okay to slow down the pace of conversation and take that moment. When you're singing African-American spirituals, (laughs) it's common for them to speed up and conductors are constantly trying to slow choirs down. It's just naturally get into it and they start speeding up and speeding (laughs) up until the conductor's like, look, this is supposed to be work music. So it needs to be a steady rhythm. And I see this all the time in conversations about race where people are like, until they're talking on top of one another. If we can slow it down, give your the outer folds of your brain, get of thinking and decision-making is housed, time to weigh in. So we're always going to be students, but we're so afraid of getting it wrong. Yeah. There's another layer that I've been aware of maybe more in the last five years, and that is white people. I don't, I can only speak for the white people I hang out with them myself, being really afraid to say anything because there's been some shaming that's happened, not from people of color in my life, but from white people to white people. And so I see a lot of well-meaning friends, people in organizations, people in power in organizations that I know really shutting down and struggling. And I will be recommending your book for this, but if they're listening now, what can we tell? The first thing is be open that you are trying to work on this Mm. and bring other people in on the journey to help you. When somebody say that somebody's trying to to train for a marathon and or any kind of health goal, for example, they'll say, bring your community into it because that will Mm -hmm. keep you on. It'll keep you on track. Mm -hmm. It'll get you into the gym that day. It'll same with smoking. And I would say the same is true here. Tell people I'm really I've noticed that I'm using microaggressions. Mm-hmm. I'm not always noticing them. It's coming out of my unconscious bias and I need your help. Let's set this up. If I use a microaggression in, in the meeting, there's mm-hmm. a stack of yellow cards in the middle of the table. <laughs> Throw a yellow card. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to explain it to me. I'm not going to put you in the position of being my Google search. Mm-hmm. You don't have to educate mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. but just let me know that it's happened. Mm-hmm. This is what I would say to people. Don't make it some kind of shameful secret. Again, you know this from childhood education. The things you don't talk about are the things children immediately associate with shame. Mm-hmm. And that's not something children do, it's something humans do. Mm-hmm. So the less we talk about this openly, this more becomes kind of shameful secret. So just be honest. Look, I'm a white person and I'm going to say the wrong thing. I went up to one of my neighbors who I just met really um, recently, a few weeks ago, and he's from his family's from Nepal, a guy named Atul. And he was talking about Thanksgiving and I said, I am so uninformed in this area like I know where Nepal is you know I know all the how it's appeared in movies and stuff but I don't what kind of food is traditional Nepalese food he's like well have you had Pakistani and I was like yes he's like yeah it's like Indian food or Pakistani food it's just way less spicy than Indian food those Indian people are crazy they put too much spice in their food essentially right i tried to be completely open about it i wasn't trying to say stuff you know how sometimes people will start talking and they'll be lot watching yes, the yes, other person yes. really carefully to see what their reaction is don't do that just say i don't know what i'm talking about here here's what i know which part of that is dumb and uninformed i really want to know you don't have to tell me i will go home and do my research i promise but help me out here and this is what i would suggest with leaders as well transparency admit your humanity Mm -hmm. of course you are not an expert on race you're a white person and although that is a 
race, when it comes to cultural race, it's been the default race for a very long time. So of course you don't know the difference, perhaps, between Sub-Saharan Africa and Northern Africa, between Western Africa and Eastern Africa, between South America and Central American traditions. Of course you don't. Ask, get people to help you. It's so simple and it makes such sense. Reading, speaking of race, like over and over again, I felt myself asking myself, why have you felt so ashamed? I mean, I remember feeling ashamed to even say the word race. <sighs> that makes me sad. Book called, it's called Race Talk and the Conspiracy of Silence by this wonderful scholar named Daryl Wing Sue. And in it, he describes a story that he heard of this young mother going through the grocery store and they see a, a Chinese man and the daughter says, oh, why are his eyes like that? And the mom's like, oh my God. And she runs away. The only reason that would be bad to point out that his eyes look different from hers is if there's something bad about having eyes that look different. Right. Like this is what we're communicating to people by not talking about this. Of course, my skin is different than yours. It's okay to point that out. Only thing that makes that bad is if we're associating bad things with that difference. So we just have to talk about this stuff. And frankly, I would much, much rather that this conversation move really confidently into white circles because you guys are the most effective at checking each other. Look, it's built into our unconscious biases that when people of color bring it up, we're seen as troublemakers right. and complainers. We're not believed. Right. We're often punished for it in our careers or even in mm -hmm. our social relationships. Mm -hmm. Whereas when white people, especially white men bring it up, not only are they believed, not only are they seen as credible, but they're often rewarded for bringing those things up. I mean, our, in our unconscious bias, we're like, wow, look at what a great <laughs> guy Tom Hanks is because he doesn't hate black people. Oh my God, he's fantastic. <laughs> Let's give him every reward possible. I Nothing against him. Tom Hanks. No, I, I, no, no. You can but, be like, yes, thanks, Tom Hanks, but you don't throw well, him another cookie. You know, it's like when the Me Too scandal broke out, and at mm -hmm. one point Matt Damon said, "We're not, we're not giving enough credit to the guys who don't rape women or harass women." And I'm like, dude, Matt Damon, I love you, but you don't get a cookie for not attacking women. <laughs> That's so, it's so sad. I don't even know why I'm laughing. Yeah. <sighs> I do want, I want people to be open about what the mistakes they've made. Mm -hmm. I tried to put set a bunch of mine in there. Be open about the mistakes you've made and own them and don't feel shame. I think I make this comparison in the book, but it's like, you know, if you're walking through the office and you, and somebody says, ow, you kicked me. You don't suddenly say, no, I didn't, or that didn't hurt. You're being overly sensitive. I was just kidding. You say, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. And that's it. When someone says you've said something inappropriate, you've said something racist, they're saying you hurt me. And you simply say, I'm so sorry. Now, let me ask you, mistake place. Do you then ask, what can I do differently in the future? Or is that considered asking someone to do emotional labor for you? It can be. What I usually uh, suggest is that you say something like, do you, do you have time or are you, you know, would you mind telling me? Cause I can do my own research. Cause that's the consent part. Right. Yeah. This is the consent. Are you willing to do this? Because I can mm -hmm. do my own research. And I only say that because people of color are so tired. They're really tired. They may not be in the place where they're able to explain that to you. They may be mad. The incident may have triggered all the other incidents in their life at which mm -hmm. they felt these were disrespected and dehumanized. And they just may not be in that emotional place. So it's okay to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm really sorry that I hurt your feelings. 
do not say I didn't intend to hurt your feelings because your intention doesn't really matter. Just like with kicking you in the shin, doesn't matter if you intended to or not, (laughs) their shin is still aching. You say, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I want to make sure I don't do that again. Do you have a moment to tell me? Because I'm willing to do this research on my own. But if you have a moment, I'd love to know more about what I did wrong. Allow them to say no. And if they do say no, say again. I'm sorry, I'm going to do better. This is your promise. It's not just you saying, I'm sorry. It's not you saying, expressing regret over what you've done, but it's also, that's your amends. That's so essential for a good apology. I'm going to make amends. I'm going to do better in the future. And then do it, (laughs) actually, actually do do that. (laughs) Is it exhausting for you to talk about this book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, didn't want to write it. My editor came to me and said, do you want to write this book? And I said, no, I changed my mind obviously later, but I got to tell you, I were worried about me. Like when I finished this book, I crashed for like two weeks. I just, it, I just crashed and I did not, it was surprising to me that it had that effect, but it, it was exhausting. You know, there's stories in here that I tell that I've never, literally never told a single other person in my life. The the paper bag, the lunch bag story with my friend Mm. at the playground. I never told anybody that story. It was, it felt shameful to me Uh, and everyone was looking at me and it was hard. Writing this book is hard and supporting it through interviews is hard, but it's, it's a mitzvah, I'm black and Jewish. If my, if my gift, is to be able to explain things to people in a way that does not make them feel defensive or stupid, Mm -hmm. then I mean, what more important area than the area of race? You know, I'm not a saint. I'm horrible in many ways. I'm just saying that this is my work (laughs) to do and I'm going to do the work. Yeah, I think what we're supposed to do in life. We're supposed to do the work we're called to do as best we can. And complain about it as little as possible. And you know, when I was trying to make the decide decision to make the book, at one point I was like, how do I look my ancestors in the eye who marched and risked their lives? And I was like, no, that emotional labor of writing this book when I've been offered a major deal from a publishing house is too much for me. (laughs) I mean, at some point I was like, come on. Right. (laughs) get over yourself Celeste so yeah obviously I went ahead and and wrote it but it was you know it's hard and I I look at people like Ema Rex Kendi or like Mm -hmm. Isabel Wilkerson and I just think I mean my god they just they are you know in there all the time I mean I can talk about other stuff right you have this huge body yeah I have this other things to talk about they are going back again and again and again Nicole Hannah-Jones and that takes the kind of backbone and grit that I don't think I have. We go back to earlier in the conversation I help you embrace your humanity you have to embrace your own humanity. Yeah. I want to switch gears for a second because talking about getting the book deal for speaking of race I'm always really curious when something there's this big moment of success that kind of comes out of nowhere and the TED talk was like that for you and what was that like and how did you handle it? I didn't uh, believe it. And I maintained that level of not believing for an almost ridiculous amount of time. <laughs> Why? You know, look, I've been a single mother for most of my adult life. I have been absolutely on the edge of absolute financial disaster so many times. Mm-hmm. I've held down six or seven jobs just to get regular bills paid. Always been financially insecure mm-hmm. forever and ever and ever. Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, part of me didn't want to believe 
because you know that catastrophe is just around the bend and you don't want it to hurt that much when things come crashing down. So like I remember when I started getting all of the offers to come and speak for increasing amounts of, of money. And I think my speaking fee now in person is like 32.5, right? Oh my God, yes! I'm able to ask for that much because so many people want me to speak, but me? In 2015, if you had said, okay, so I'll tell you this. When I got my very first speaking gig, it was from the International Interior Decorators Association, something like that. And they said, we just wanted, we want you to come give a keynote and we wondered how much. And I was like, a thousand dollars. And they went, yes, thank you. You're booked. And I was like, uh-oh, I guess I asked for too little. So the next pre first people came in, it was like the Houston Realtors Association. And I was like, $1,500? They're like, yes, okay. And I was like, oh, I better get an agent. So like this all dawned on me extremely slowly. It was like a slow moving tidal wave where I was like, oh. And then I remember at one point, I was in the I was in the airport flying somewhere. I'd forgotten to bring a phone charger, so I went to the little shop and I said, "Hey, I need to get a phone charger." And blah, 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 blah. and the woman behind the counter goes, "Are you Celeste Headley?" And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> and she's like, "Oh my god, I recognize your voice. I listen to all your audiobooks and I watch your TED Talk a billion times." And I was like, "Okay, so I think this is happening. Like I think maybe you had to change your identity almost, would you yeah. say?" Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, very much so. I also got to give free reign to parts of my identity that like I hadn't what? been able to express. So I like super like to throw parties and give presents. <laughs> and like, I just like to give presents. Oh, I want it. I want that gift. Can you teach me how to have that gift? I'm so bad at giving gifts. So I have, I have cards printed up. I'll read them to you. And I, I give them with gifts. It says, you've received a present. Hi there. I like to buy gifts. Giving gifts is one of my favorite things to do, but I never want my gift to make you feel awkward. I don't expect a gift in return, even on my birthday. I do not keep score and feel disappointed when people don't buy the same amount of gifts for me as I buy for them. Sometimes I buy gifts for people I barely know or just met. In some cases, I buy gifts that people love. Other times I give them things they don't really like. It's okay to tell me. I promise I won't take it personally. It's also okay to re-gift them or just give it to the goodwill. A gift should never become a burden. Thanks for allowing me to indulge myself you're the best celeste wow so having more income you can get more gifts exactly and i throw four parties a year and i so extra it's not even funny i throw the same four parties every year in the spring it's party gras in the summer it's midsummer night's drink in october it's cheers for fears and i'm just coming up on my winter one which is luda christmas a lot you know that was always inside me but i never was able to express that part of my personality as you say this it reminds me of the feeling that i got just to go back to do nothing like reading about the story tapes that you used to make and i thought well i always made really cool like cassette mixtapes but i never thought about story tapes but that book gave me and i'm sure so many other people so much permission to have that kind of fun again without it having to improve me make me skinnier make me more fit fit make me a better writer make me a better writing teacher make me a better podcaster yeah I mean, whatever happened to just doing stuff because you like it? Whatever happened to that? But I didn't realize until I read Do Nothing that it was that productivity culture message. Even though I knew all that research, my friend, I didn't put it together, which again is one of your talents. I didn't put it together with my free time. 
Yeah. And how I always felt that I should be doing something useful or getting better at it or getting better at something. The research for that book was a huge eye opener for me. And when I started doing all this research, and I think I even complained about it in the book, all the freaking boring <laughs> books on labor practices, <laughs> going back to the times of the ancient Greeks, I do not recommend that to anybody. Just don't. I you don't did. have to, you have your book. You don't I have to do it for it. you. But when I started to realize how much changed in the industrial revolution, it never even occurred to me. You know, when people say time is money, it never occurred to me that that's a super recent idea <laughs> that you cannot count your time in terms of money. In fact, if you think about it, how ridiculous that is. Mm -hmm. And for most of 300,000 years, we didn't measure it that way. You know, we would bring in a harvest and then we'd party for two weeks. <laughs> we'd have a themed, one of your themed parties. Yeah, we would have a wedding and there was a one week long party. You don't drive to someone's wedding, celebrate for two hours and hope that you can get home because you got to get that email to stew. This whole idea that work is the point of our existence rather than we're existing, we're existing, we're existing. Uh oh, we need something. We better go work. Okay, we did that. Let's get back to our existence. That's how we lived for most of our lives. And look at what it's done to us to flip that on its head. I know, I don't think you really talked about this and do nothing, but I wanted to ask you, do you think the idea of passion in our work has become a new twist? Because I know for me, it was always like, I am only going to do work I love. And I've been pretty darn lucky, although that was a very naive view. I realized, you know, a good 25 years ago, but... But I do love what I do and it has its own shadow to it. Did you think about that in the do nothing? I thought about it a framework? lot because I have been saying to myself all the time, my son, you know, he's probably the true progenitor of do nothing because he's always was, was saying, you work too much, you work too much, mm -hmm. you work too much. Oh, he would tell his friends, my mom doesn't know how to relax. And I would say, but I love what I do. Yeah, you can love what you do, but it's still work. Right. Like you're fooling yourself if you think that your passion for what you do means that's allowed to take over yourself as a human being. I believe that the work that I do makes the world a better place, but the better place for whom? For human beings, right? My whole purpose is to make the world a better place for human beings. And in order to do this, I make the world worse for not just myself as a human being, but all the people in my life. I'm not seeing my friends or my relatives or spending enough time with my son, obviously. And those things are supposed to balance you. No, 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 no. Like the people whose lives I have the most impact on are those closest to me. So I'm not going to spend all, all of that time and energy on people where my, I may have an impact, but it's going to be a ripple a mile out in the ocean, mm -hmm. as opposed to what I can do right here in front of me. You're hitting me deep in my heart today. I thank you for that. After I wrote, we need to talk. One of mm -hmm. the most common questions I would get from audiences was how do I get my kid to get off their phone? Every time I see my kid, she's on her phone, on her phone, on her phone. I always say, are you modeling that? Do you leave the house without your phone sometimes? Do you go to have dinner without your phone? When your phone rings, do you sometimes ignore it? Are you constantly checking? Do you watch a movie with your phone next to you? Or are you expecting your kids to behave in a different way than you're behaving? What do they say? There's silence. There's almost <laughs> always silence. I'm not part of the phone world, but there's plenty of other things. that. But this is the same thing that's true yeah. with overwork. I, I, I fully cop to it. Celeste, you're awesome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you're so awesome. I have this last question that I ask my uh, guests. What do you want to learn next? 
So what I want to learn next, I have a friend of mine who doesn't see adverse events as a reflection on her character. And I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn how if she's sore one day, she doesn't think, oh God, I'm not taking good care of myself. She thinks, oh, what's causing my soreness? What was it? She was she was talking to me the other day. She's about the same age as I am. And she was saying, oh, I've stopped uh, turning a certain way in the shower. Like, I guess she her whole life she's been to do one thing in the shower. She'd always turn. And she, because she's getting older, she's like, this could be a big problem. And I thought to myself, how revolutionary is that small thing? Where she's like, I'm getting older. I'm not capable of doing this anymore and I don't have to feel I don't have to feel shameful about it at all like I'm not capable of doing this this is not me admitting I'm an old fogey this is just this is what's happening in my body that's uh what I want to I want to learn from her it's fantastic me too and I want to learn how to have better conversations about race so thank you for that book and I'll be reading it and rereading it and really pondering how I can do keep learning how to do that and not right. shy away from it and not be afraid yeah good luck Thank you. Well, that entire conversation was a takeaway for me on life. And I think in many ways, what Celeste has to say about conversations also applies to the creative process. Are we listening as much as we're so-called talking? Are we stretching to connect generously with the people we want to reach with our art and our words? Are we listening as much as we're talking. I think another way to think about it, are we taking in as much as we're giving out? Maybe we need to take in more. So, so much a rich conversation. I hope you'll read Do Nothing. I hope you'll read Speaking of Race. I hope you'll read her first book, We Need to Talk. And I hope you'll check out her TED Talk. What are you going to take away? What are you going to share? Maybe it's not about the creative process so much this week. Maybe you're going to think about conversation in general and conversations about race differently. Next week, we have a great conversation with Debbie Lockwood. She's the commentary and ideas editor at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and she's the author of a really beautiful, fascinating book, A Thousand One Voices on Climate Change. Dig this. She traveled around the world, not all around the world, but lots of parts of the world, by bike, having intimate personal conversations with people about how climate change was impacting, is impacting their lives, and what they're doing about it, how they're adapting. Her adventures, her courage as a creator, how she followed her different impulses starting at Harvard and went on to write this book at a very young age. Really inspiring. So tune in next week for Debbie Lockwood. We've got a lot of other really great guests coming up, including the best-selling and beloved novelist and memoirist, Sue Monk Kidd, artist, illustrator, activist, Lisa Cogden, and much more. So I hope you're subscribed, and I hope you'll share the show with someone in your life who needs some creative inspiration, because we all do, especially right now. Take care. See you next week. Oh, and in the meantime, don't forget, create out loud.